0: You're listening to the Economics and Country Risk podcast from S&P Global Market Intelligence. In each episode, our experts will provide you with the where, how, and when to make decisions that transform your business. Hi, I'm Kristen Hallam, content strategist at S&P Global Market Intelligence, and your host for this episode of the Economics and Country Risk podcast. 2023 is a year of two halves for global supply chains. The normalization of supply chain conditions that got underway late last year will continue during the second quarter of 2023. Later in the year, post-pandemic corporate strategies should be clearer and global policy uncertainties may be resolved. Here to share insights from his report on the supply chain outlook for the second quarter and beyond, is Chris Rogers, Head of Supply Chain Research at S&P Global Market Intelligence. Thanks for joining me, Chris.
1: Thanks very much, Kristen. It's great to be here.
0: Let's talk about the year of two halves. In the first half, we're expecting a return to quote-unquote normal conditions in the operation of supply chains. What do we mean by that? What signs of normalization are we seeing?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because it starts with what is normal? right? Are we returning to volumes and patterns that we saw before the pandemic? Are we seeing some sort of return to just what in fluid dynamics you call laminar flow? So everything nice and smooth. What is that normal? And I think for our purposes, what we're talking about is the free flow of goods, no major bottlenecks, volumes that can be handled in a reasonable amount of time. And of course, when we're analysing data and we are very data driven in our research, what we're looking at are, you know, are we seeing a decline in activity year over year? And where are we compared to 2019? So I kind of look at three areas when we're thinking about where normality would be. One is in logistics network activity. Um, particularly the levels of shipping that are ongoing but also are we seeing ports running on a free basis housing space starting to come back are we seeing seasonal patterns of shipments returning to what they've been in the past and also the flow of goods to different ports we saw a lot of rerouting during the madness of the past couple of years second is corporate decision making So are companies returning to thinking about their strategies for inventory management or sourcing rather than making snap decisions or tactical decisions just to get goods wherever they can as soon as they can? And then the third part is the basic supply chain operations and data there. So, for example, the S&P Global PMI surveys look at a lot of different measures of supplier delivery times. And I think what we can say generally is that we are seeing a return to normal. So shipping levels are down back to 2019 levels. The inventory to sales levels are back to, excuse me, they're not quite back to their long-term history, but they're well down from their peak. And the PMI for supplier delivery times is actually now at its fastest that it's been uh, since 2019. So in those regards, something of a ways back to perhaps, if not normal, at least back to conditions that are manageable in supply chains.
0: Shipping levels are down. Where are you seeing the bulk of the downturn?
1: Yeah, I think the downturn is really across the board. And that's not just shipping, that also includes air freight and trucking, rail freight, obviously the mix of what's being handled. But when we look at industries, I think where we've seen the biggest part of the downturn so far has been in consumer durable goods, so that's things like furniture, buys equipment, things that people were buying for their homes during the pandemic. And in those levels in March, and this is data that's you know really up to date, we've seen shipment levels drop by forty percent year over year, um, and in fact back to levels seen now in 2019. And I think that's partly notable as well because obviously we're now four years down the line. So, you know there's not even been underlying trend growth there that shows you how far we've come back. We've also seen a slowdown in some of the materials, so things like paper and forestry products and building products, both of which are down by around a third. The paper and forestry side is I think being driven by packaging, so obviously, if you're buying less online, you don't need as many cardboard boxes to move it around by and building products is also driven a lot by residential construction and home improvements. And there's evidence from elsewhere in our economics data that we've seen a slowdown there. I think areas that are a little bit more robust have been capital goods, particularly electrical equipment. And that's partly because there are a lot of orders that were placed over the past couple of years that couldn't be fulfilled, um, and they're only slowly being fulfilled. So the cycle, the length of the economic cycle for capital goods tends to take a bit longer to turn down and a bit longer to turn up the maybe consumer goods that, that react more quickly.
0: Other than capital goods, are there any other areas that aren't really normalizing just yet? And what factors would be driving that?
1: I would highlight kind of two sectors where I think we are not yet back to fully normal. One is electronics, and that's almost a ridiculous sector because it covers everything from the semiconductors that are in everything to specific products like mobile phones or laptop computers or games machines, or indeed autos. And autos, by the way, is the second sector, which I'll come to in a minute. What we saw from the electronics sector over the past three years is an imbalance in the availability of components. So there are many, many different types of chips, ranging from basic power control devices that go into anything that's got a charger that you plug into the wall, through to the very latest graphics processing units that are in games machines or Bitcoin mining machines or some of the latest supercomputers. And what we've generally seen is that there's been a shortage of some of those basic chips, and that's partly because they're used by lots of different industries. And so we've seen a broad range of of industries, uh, their demand for basic semiconductors and basic components. What we've seen as well from the manufacturing side is obviously the factory closures that we saw in mainland China and elsewhere during the pandemic. And we were still seeing some of those closures in late 2022 those manufacturing patterns are still in the process of returning to normal and then at the same time we've got this demand driver coming through and the demand for computers and mobile phones and so on have dropped off and they've dropped off significantly demand for computers i think has has dropped by somewhere between a quarter and a third for example so that leaves this situation where the chip makers are saying okay we, we don't have a lot of choice in the short term to you know, redirect what we're making. So we need to make those tactical decisions. But at the same time, we're facing some tactical challenges, particularly around some of the subtypes. So power, different powers of processors, different capacities of memory. And I think it's interesting that we've gone from a situation where a year ago, there was a shortage of semiconductors of all sorts to now having some of the biggest chip makers actually talk about cutting their manufacturing. So I think electronics is far from being back in balance. The automotive industry is also one that has yet to really return to to balance. We've got companies trying to fulfill prior orders. I know people who still have vehicles on order from 12 or 15 months ago, so new vehicles that are still being awaited. And again, vehicle is made up of a lot of different parts and you only need one of them to not be available for the whole vehicle to be delayed. So we're still seeing normalization there. And the automakers at the same time are also trying to juggle this shift to manufacturing electric vehicles, which have fundamentally different supply chains to what they've had in the past. Now, that's not the biggest part of the industry yet, but you've got one of the most complicated supply chains in the world in the form of the automotive sector still trying to rectify availability, particularly of those electronic components. So it's really electronics and everything that flows downstream of those that have yet to normalize.
0: I'm sure we could do a whole separate podcast episode just on that.
1: Yeah, let's do that sometime.
0: Yes, let's put a pin in that. So let's talk corporate inventory strategies for a minute. Last year, we saw some retailers stocking up and then struggling to get their inventories down, leading to some good deals for holiday shoppers. Was this a supply chain issue or a supply demand issue? Uh, yes,
1: I think is the answer to that. No, so it was very much a bit of both. I think what we're seeing there is more of a cost failure, specifically a demand forecast failure, and that's not to cast any blame on anyone. We've been through some very exceptional times, and yeah, there's been plenty of macro economists got it wrong. Never mind the uh, the corporate planners who have a very small part of the world um, to deal with. You effectively had this situation where you moved into a period of elevated demand for a lot of goods as people substituted their spending away from services, the level and timing of that lasted a lot longer and a lot higher than I think many companies expected. And so in 2020, there was a shortage of uh, a lot of products going into the peak holiday shopping season. The same happened in 2021 because demand stayed elevated. So for 2022, a lot of companies followed a strategy of shipping early and shipping more. So what happened there was that logistics networks were effectively clogged up in 2021, didn't have time to, if you like, clear out of the trapped goods within the system during the start of 2022, just as an extra wave of products came through. And then all of a sudden, in kind of July or August of last year, it became clear that companies had shipped early and shipped too much. And that just wasn't just in consumer goods, that was across components as well. A lot of this can be drawn back to this concept that's sometimes referred to as a whip effect. So effectively, I run out of something, so I order twice as much to be delivered sooner than before. My supplier goes, "Oh, okay, he ran out. He might run out again. I'll order twice as much as I actually need. So I've effectively 4 so four times ordered what I was planning even earlier. And that goes up the chain. Of course, as soon as the consumer demand's not there, then everyone realizes they ordered too much too soon. But it takes a long time for that to wind out of the system. And if we take a look at what we're seeing in terms of inventory to sales ratios, whether at the macro level or at the corporate level, we're seeing the ratios come down. But they're, again, as I mentioned earlier, still somewhat away from normal. So if we look at Furniture to furniture and appliances inventory to sales ratios, for example, they are kind of just about back to normal, having had some pretty heavy discounting at the first part of this year um, just to try and get things back on a even keel.
0: So what if anything, are companies doing differently this year to avoid that type of excess inventory
1: situation? Yeah, so we're going to get, I think, in the next couple of months or so, as we get through the first quarter earnings reporting season, these conference calls that folks will be listening to in May and in early June, to actually get some comments about what companies are actually doing. Because I think it's obvious what you need to do, right? You start by maybe ordering less in absolute terms, and then either returning to a more normal seasonal ordering strategy. So effectively, if you're in consumer goods, you want those deliveries coming in in October time rather than August, which is you know what happened last year. And then maybe even follow, where appropriate, a staged shipping profile. So you order some now, see how demand's doing, and then order more later. The problem there, of course, is that you're trying out something new in an uncertain environment. And you're also trying out something new that you know, is maybe more expensive than it's been in the past as well. It's always easier and cheaper to provide one order to your supplier and have it all come through in one go, rather than trying to follow more of a staged approach. When we look at what companies have said so far, the first part has just simply been drawing down excess inventories by using price reductions, You know, the good deals that you referred to a little bit earlier on, and we're still seeing more of that come through. I think also companies are increasingly trying to do a better job of forecasting their demand. And there's a lot of different parts to that. Um, But a big part of that is actually just communicating more with um, suppliers. And funnily enough, one of the comments we've seen almost universally from most companies when they've talked about the supply chain challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned, a lot of it has been, we are communicating more with our suppliers about what our requirements are. So. If you're in the middle of the supply chain, you'll have a better sense of maybe what is going to be coming towards you and also what the contingencies are, because it's all well and good having kind of your base plan, but outlining where you might flex up or down from that is pretty important as well.
0: Communication, always very important, for sure. In addition to that, communication, that conversation are there specific data points that companies should be looking at or considering as they weigh their supply chain strategies for 2023?
1: I think the first point is to have available as many different data points as possible. I know it sounds a little bit generic to say that, but a lot of supply chain planners will have their favorite kind of one or two uh, ratios that they like to watch. That might be A particular trade measure, or it might be a particular retail sales measure, or it might be a particular line within the PMI suite. But I think it is important to be more kind of data omnivorous uh, as a starting point. I think clearly, um, you know, weighing out the strategy for the rest of this year, you want to be looking at these kind of nearer term measures. For example, on the supply chain activity side, obviously we have some kind of low latency trade data that can give you a sense of what's flowing through the pipes. And again, that can help you spot potential problems as they start to emerge. The PMI measures that I mentioned already, so these kind of purchasing manager intentions, those are somewhat forward-looking and they can be useful as well. Where are the expectations of orders? And we're lucky now that there's a much higher resolution of that data available than there has been in the past. I think it's also important to keep an eye on commodity costs. And I don't just mean oil and gas and steel and copper, although those are important. I'm talking about all of the cost base that firms face, because what we haven't talked about so far is inflation. And whilst it's tempting to go, well, you know, inflation rates are heading down, so you know, why do we need to worry about that? I think it does play into your supply chain strategy as to whether you want to order now or later one of the things that concerns me a little bit about the state of supply chains at the moment is we may see companies say all right if we're seeing deflation or disinflation deflation prices coming down disinflation being slower rates of inflation then maybe I'll wait a little bit and I might get a better deal I might be able to get a lower price well you know firstly inflation might not go away and second of all you may end up leaving it too late and suffer anyway i think the final part to to track is elements around consumer demand and also actually your competitors' data. We're blessed by the SEC in the US and other bodies elsewhere requiring companies to publish a lot of their financial data. And keeping a track of that can give you a sense of not just what your competitors have been doing, but what your suppliers are up to as well. I think particularly that kind of supplier qualification, particularly when you're thinking about how you're sourcing and where you're sourcing from, can be really important as well.
0: Yeah, and I want to touch on that because in your recent report on the outlook for the second quarter, which I mentioned in the intro, you said companies are not just trying to figure out how much, but also where from. And so I wanted to ask you, are companies diversifying their supply chains? Are they nearshoring or friendshoring or reshoring or whatever type of shoring is, uh, is in vogue at the moment?
1: <laughs> yeah, the answer to that question is also yes. <laughs> I think clearly there, there's a very different answer for every company and for every sector. Generically, I kind of started referring to this as ex-shoring, because as you say, there's lots of different buzzwords out there and there's lots of different drivers for why companies are looking to change their sourcing. And by the way, it doesn't just mean that they're diversifying, it might be that they're focusing, for example. So yeah, you know, we hear a lot of talk of country X plus one. There are companies that are going to be looking at after the pandemic and say, or after the disruptions of the past couple of years and say, actually, maybe we've got too many small suppliers, or maybe we're not diversified in the way that we hoped. But I think when we're talking about shoring, ex-shoring, reshoring more generally, you're going to be looking at things like costs, geopolitics, logistics, government incentives, tariffs. These are all areas where companies have to make a lot of different trade-offs. Are companies diversifying or reshoring their supply chains? The answer is absolutely yes. But I think it, it's worth bearing in mind that this is really you know, very much a multi-year process it can take two or three years to set up a new factory in just one location and that's assuming that you don't have anything else weird or wonderful going on (laughs) i'd also bear in mind that it's not often the case that you solely move to one new location the example i often give is for headphones whether that's the cheap and cheerful set that i've got on at the moment or the more expensive branded pods of various sorts that that my kids have There's been a shift away from China accounting for nearly 80% of global exports to now Vietnam and China, each accounting for around 40%. Now, that process happened quite quickly. There's only about a two-year process as that shift occurred. But we're starting to see another shift where we're beginning to see companies talk about bringing in India as another sourcing location. And again, those decisions can take a couple of years to make and then a couple of years to implement. I think one important point to note, though, and again, it's not something we've talked about too much so far, is whether you believe we're entering a recession or not, belief is the wrong word, whether you're forecasting that we're in a recession or not. The fact is that we are facing a slowdown in demand for a lot of goods, a slowdown in supply chain activity. And reshoring or multiple sourcing is expensive. You know, there's a setup cost, even if you end up saving cost in the longer term. If you are thinking about using more inventories than you were in the past as part of a more kind of, how can I put it, more conservative strategy, that all costs more money. And is is there a situation right now where your shareholders or your senior managers are going to welcome a higher cost solution? at a time when profit margins might be under pressure. Again, there's no shortage of companies having said, yes, this is something we we need to do, but the implementation takes time and there's always a reason to put it off for a little bit longer. So I think there are specific sectors where we can see that reshoring is has happened or is happening. Assembled consumer electronics and home appliances are an area where we've seen a lot of that. But again, it's a slow old process and it doesn't readily present itself in the data. I guess the final point to make is that the best laid plans don't always survive. Political backdrop that you use today could kind of easily change tomorrow.
0: Yeah, we have touched on geopolitical risks associated with reshoring, nearshoring, ex-shoring, as you as you put it. <laughs> and you mentioned a few other things as well, like tariffs. Are there any other operational risks that companies should consider? as they're maybe making some moves towards near shoring, X shoring? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. What are the X factors? So I would say, you know, from an operational perspective, we've got a big team of colleagues who are specialists on the operational risks in different countries. I'd break out probably, I would say, five areas, maybe. Labour is the obvious one and labour rights is a big deal. You see it, In Mexico, for example, where the advent of the USMCA trade deal has resulted in more unionization, um, infrastructure disruption is a major challenge. Can you get what you've made inland to the port? When you get it to the port, is the port in good condition? So I, I would say that's an issue. And it's been a kind of a repeated challenge, for example, for folks who are looking to source out of India is some of those infrastructure issues Regulatory burdens can vary significantly, not just by country, but over time. Licensing and building permits and operating permits, these all take quite some time and do vary significantly. And it's why you see quite often companies use a local partner. Threats of contract renegotiation, how set in stone is your contract? That that can vary quite significantly. And then you've got, I guess, some more domestic political risks rather than geopolitical risks around things like taxation. So it's a really kind of complex web. And again, it's why companies don't take that kind of decision to reshore lightly. It can take a long, long time to make the decision.
0: Yeah, that's quite a daunting list there that you just gave us. (laughs) For sure. So looking ahead to the rest of 2023, what risks do you see persisting and what supply chain risks may be resolved in the second half
1: yeah so i think the stuff that's going to get resolved is probably shorter um i think the concern we'd had at the start of the year was that it was growing tensions across the board that could disrupt supply chains across the board and i think we've seen a resolution of tension between the us and its g7 partners so US and EU, US, Japan, and so on, particularly around the Inflation Reduction Act and the kind of tensions that was creating in what effectively was being seen as a trade measure as much as anything else. Issues that are still ongoing, clearly the conflict in Ukraine, our concern would be around secondary sanctions should other countries choose to finally fall in with Russia. I'd also say the um, uncertainties around the bifurcation of technology supply chains. I'm not a subscriber to the wholesale decoupling of east from west technology supply chains, but there are elements of that which have become more complex. So products where there are increasing usage of export restrictions, and I think that will continue to spread. And then later in the year, we're going to see the use carbon border adjustment mechanism raise its ugly head as companies start to have to report Their emissions and their sourcing based on emissions. And that's on a limited number of products, but they're products that are in a lot of supply chains, particularly steel and aluminum. So that uncertainty is going to start to arise later in the year.
0: And you've just given me another idea for a podcast episode, Chris. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) We've covered a lot of ground in a short time. Let's. Take a step back and give our listeners, maybe particularly our listeners in the C-suite, some high-level takeaways from our discussion today. What would be your top takeaways?
1: Yeah, so I would say we're kind of almost back to stable, even if we're not back to normal, whatever your flavor of normal is. So it's a good time to be thinking about your both tactical and strategic supply chain decisions. So tactical for the rest of this year, strategic for the longer term, but you need to decide whether you want to learn the lessons of the past three years. If the answer is yes, then think about reshoring and inventory strategies, but you're going to have to be willing to invest at a time where maybe your profit margins are falling. If you're going to put those short-term profits first, then you know that's fine. And I guess at least you're aware of the risks that you're taking in not adapting and continuing with business as usual. Uh, in any event, the risk situation for you remains dynamic. You know We still have the conflict out there. We still got this uncertainty about technology supply chains in particular, and you do still have to keep environmental issues in mind and CBAM later in the year, the EU carbon border adjustment mechanism later in the year, I think it's something you've got to think about whether you're a believer in ex-shoring or moving to just in time rather than just in case. or any of these other business decisions, at the minimum, you've got a new set of data that you've got to add to your analysis as we go into the latter part of the year.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your insights with us on the podcast today. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us next week when we will dive deeper into the forces at work in 2023. Thank you for listening to the Economics and Country Risk podcast. Connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.